0: Good to be here. Uh, Yeah, we don't consider Chris that big of a problem, but God's good. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn into the book of James, chapter 5. Kind of give you a little heads up what's going on in the text this morning. James is doing a summary conclusion. Uh, He's written to this group of Christians who are going under through extreme duress If you've ever been through a period in your life of suffering or difficulty, uh, you could probably identify where these people live. They live and really have no hope or expectation of ever living in any other place where things are resolved for them. So James is kind of really quickly going through four things we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, You know, I'm just curious. I don't ever ask people. I don't want people put people on the spot to raise their hands. But just out of curiosity, this morning I want to do this. How many of you have heard of a relatively new term called doom scrolling? Raise your hand. Doom scrolling. Nobody's heard of doom scrolling. Doom scrolling is uh, a millennial term uh, invented by a generation that was is so media savvy that they're going to be more you know, cognizant of these type of things. But doom scrolling, as explained by 25 years old, is, is, is where you get up and you go on to your Apple News aggregate or your Google or whatever you use or you watch, you know, if you're really elderly, you watch television uh, on a network or something. And, and it's, it's, it's bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. That's Doom scrolling. It's when you allow your mind, and, you know, it's, you walk around, I walk around, and if I ever see anybody alone, they've got their, you know, their iPhone out or their Android out, and they're, they're, they're looking on, I mean, we've just become addicted to information in our generation more than any other generation. So this savvy tech young lady who's writing this article basically said, at the age of 25, I've walked away from media. I've walked away from the news. I've walked away because it was so toxic to my soul. There's so much negativity out there in our culture. And it's constantly in front of us. And there was a survey done by news organizations. And, of course, they all justified it. But it turns out 99.3% of all the information on news you get on an average day is negative. 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 Now, we're, the world is interconnected in a way that it's not been in the past, but those negativities, many of them, I would ascertain if you're a student of history, have always been with us. You know, now, now whether or not things are worse or better, I, I really don't know, but things have been worse throughout the beginning of time. Since the creation of man, there's been adversity and issues and In a passage I kind of wanted, there's an Old Testament corollary passage written by a young king who was a shepherd who became a king. And once he became a king, he became aware of evil in the world. He would not have been aware of that when he was out in the Judean hills, you know, tending his sheep, uh, playing his harp or his guitar, probably not electric. And he, he would have been at peace Uh, more than likely, but but all of a sudden, as king, all of a sudden, the envoys of the world, the news of the world is coming to him. And David finds himself really conflicted with all that he sees and he hears and what's going on. And we know that David, as a king, as a follower of God, struggled with depression, circumstantial depression. There were times he just simply felt overwhelmed by what was going on. And so it's generally considered that Psalms 37. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to read some of it. But Psalms, Psalms 37 is written some probably 1,500 years before James Wright. Yet he's vocalizing the same struggle that every generation before us has had. What are we going to do? What are we going to do when we're in the valley? What 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 are we going to do when 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 things in our life aren't all right? My wife and I were watching television the other night and there was an insurance agency that was, was, it was an advertisement. And, you know, I've just kind of become uh, callous to all the advertisements and they're silly, you know, what they say their product is going to offer. But basically, this, this, they literally said it. They said, hey, if you buy our insurance product, everything in your life will be all right. And my wife looked at me and she said, well, obviously, we've got the wrong insurance company. Because everything in our life is not right, and so we we know most of us, at least when we think, which is sometimes hard for us to do because there's so much information crowding into our minds, we know that that's just nonsense. We can look at the world we live in and know that's nonsense. But the issue is, how do we navigate? How do we live? How do we survive? When you finally come to the recognition, it's not going to get better. There's not going to be a political savior. There's not going to be any hope outside of the hope of the gospel. We all run, go through life. We face difficulties. We walk in valleys. And and then eventually we we die. We face the the final adversity. The final adversary, as the scripture puts it, is is death. But we have this hope in us, of course. But this is what David had to say. David said, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who... Who do wrong? For they wither quickly like grass, and wilt like the plander, like tender green plants. When we, we look at our news and we see the oppression, and we see the violence, and we see the angry, uh, angry world that we live in. Many times there's a, there's a feeling of desperation that evil people always seem to be in control just seems to work out that way on planet Earth. Whether it's dictators that 90% of the world's population are currently living under or even politicians in a democracy that perhaps we had hope in and then those politicians disappoint us. And what David is saying, listen, we've got to understand that our today in the moment is only a passing vague appearance of reality. It's not ultimate reality. He goes on and he says, as an encouragement, trust in the Lord and do what's good. In spite of the gloom and the doom, do, choose to do what's good. Choose not to be part of the darkness. Resist the rage. He goes on, trust in the Lord and do what's good. Dwell in the land. In other words, live in the culture where God has planted you and live securely. I mean live live securely, not in the sense that you're somehow going to escape the difficulties of the planet, but the reality that in the difficulties of the planet, God Almighty, is with you and his presence is always with you. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord, not in your ford. That rhymes I want to go with that. What doesn't really make any difference, but avoid avoid the mistake of putting your delight in something that is transitory, right? Not in your wife, not in your husband, not in your boyfriend, not in your girlfriend, not in your school, not in your education, not in not in whatever it is that you being delight in what the bible would say is an idol. Delight in something that delights in you. Delight in something that can give you ultimate joy, and that is God himself. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine as dawn, your justice like noonday. in other words, God is going to use an example of your peace and your victory in the midst of the storm he 's going to use that as an example to the rest of the world. Verse seven is incredibly salient for us in America today. Be silent before the Lord. be silent don 't find don 't have this need to express your outrage and your opinion and your anger and your befuddlement over everything that you're seeing because this is the normal course of the world that we have lived in, that our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and Africa live in, and that every generation since the beginning has lived in. Be silent before the Lord. Wait expectantly for Him. In other words, have patience in the valleys. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the man who carries out his evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. It's rarely, I don't watch the news anymore, because every time I would turn it on, whether the news media was left or right, it would begin with some, an opening line like this. You should be outraged. And now we live in a nation that is outraged. Scripture says it's not to be that way for my people. It's not to be those, those that are followers of Christ. In fact, one of, the, one of the most precious promises of Jesus, he says, peace I leave you, not as the world. In other words, it's not going to be this transitory, transient peace that so many of our fellow citizens long for. It's going to be internal peace that is transformational because the very presence of God now inhabits his people. It's different. It's not the right job. It's not the right marriage. It's not the right car. It's not the right life. It's the right God that makes a difference. And this is what King David is saying is he's overwhelmed. Refrain from anger. Let it go. Give it up. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm because in the end, closing in verse 9, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those with their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And this is essentially what Pastor Chris was preaching last week. And he's talking about people who oppress people, and especially those who are down and out and those who are poor and those who are sick and those who are wounded, all the kind of things that people, you, the way people take advantage of one another. And then so what James begins talking about in chapter 5 is, is the priority of Patience. Now, I want to talk a little bit about patience uh, in just a minute, but I wanted to also remind you that when James started this whole letter, which would have been read in one setting, he starts in chapter one with this exhortation, which I find const- strangely unsettling, unsettling as an American. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you win the lottery. Have you got your Bibles? I mean, what is it, what is it exactly this morning that if you were to say, I would consider it great joy, fill in the blank. What does it mean for you to fill in the blank? Consider it great joy. Consider it great joy, brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Oh, yeah. Yeah. God. God. I am I'm going through adversity. I've got some real significant challenges in my life. I've got a person who's driving me crazy. I've got I just got a diagnosis of cancer. Praise Jesus. I mean, think about how countercultural God's wisdom is. I mean, that was totally unexpected. For God to say, listen, in in times that you find yourself entering it into a crisis or into a valley, count it all joy. Uh, Consider it great joy, my brothers, that you experience various trials. But this is the reason, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must also do its complete work, So that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And what it's saying is, is that the majority of the storms and the valleys and the difficulties and the pressure that you and I feel in life are not created by God. But nevertheless, because we live in a fallen world, we all go through them. And the understanding is, is for the believer that even in the midst of my most difficult valleys and circumstances, God who is the sovereign Lord of all, He is always with us and He's working in us. In other words, that which is intended to destroy you, those very things that befuddle you and cause kin conflict in you and, and make you upset and make you lose your patience are the very things that even though they are against you legitimately that God is using to make you into the image of his son Jesus now I know that's for some of you that's a very foreign concept but see this, this is the mission that Jonathan was talking about you see what the world doesn't need is more of Joe Dillon he needs the more of Jesus Christ the world needs more of Jesus Christ And so what happens is when I came to faith in Christ, God began a process of causing me to decline through adversity and conflict where I would learn about my own weaknesses and push me towards a reliance and a trust who is able to do that which I cannot. Something that can get me through the worst of life so that in the mission that the world is doom scrolling every day can find some hope in a dark and lightless world. So that's the mission, the continuation of the mission of Jesus Christ is you. The Bible says the hope of glory is God in us. So God's doing this work. And God's using this evil world and all the evil tides and waves that assault us legitimately in life. And we have to understand that that circumstance and that evil will not triumph. It will not win. Even in the worst of it. When it seems like we are going down for ultimate defeat, God will strike or snatch victory out of the jaws of that defeat, and God will be glorified in the eyes of man. Now, he's chosen us. And you feel very inadequate, probably, in that task, and I feel very inadequate, but it's not about you, and it's not about me, it's about God. It's about what God can do through a surrendered life. And so, so James, James begins, if you would, looking at verse 5 and talking about patience. And he said, listen, for the long run of living, you've got to, you've got to depend on something I'm willing to give you, and that's patience. Now, <laughs> I am not a patient man. I don't know about any of the rest of you, but, you know, I, I really struggle with patience. And uh, this week, my wife didn't know I was preaching on this passage, and uh, she she didn't until this morning, uh, but we've been preparing for retirement, and I know a lot of people retire. You know, you never think about it until you get there, and all of a sudden, you realize you're not going to have any money, and it's like, you got to plan. You got to start planning, so I've spent a year of intensive planning on how are we going to live on 50% less than what we've lived on for the past few years. And, And we worked out a plan and all this other kind of stuff. And then Monday afternoon, we were talking to somebody who works with insurance companies and represents Medicaid. And we found out that a very expensive medication that we need in the future is not on the list. And we were going to have to pay a lot of money that we weren't going to have. We're not going to have in retirement. So I reacted with panic. So my wife and I go out and we take a walk and I am raging about what are we going to do? The sky is falling. You know, God is dethroned. and I wasn't I saying that, but I was raging. I'm just panicking in the moment. This, this, is a, this is a valley. This is a deep, dark valley. We'll never get out of this valley. Life is over. We are doomed. That's the way I react. Wife is quieter, so after three hours in the hurricane, he's blown out. <laughs> you got anything to say? She said, yeah, I got a question for you. Well, what is it? <clears throat> well, exactly when is it when you're going to start living this stuff and just not preach preaching, that you're preaching all the time? <sighs> well, you know, I'm 66. <laughs> 72? (laughs) Life has a way like these people. Now, what was going on with these people? They were being persecuted from city to city because the cities during the Roman Empire, they each were allowed to maintain their God. And that that particular God was usually what united the community and so uh this this community would have this God and this community, and usually revolved around something like if it was a farming community or they you know they brought you know, they made wine or they made trinkets or whatever Some God would kind of unite the political the business, and the religious system to keep that community together and Rome recognized that is kind of something that would help keep the empire together, and so they allowed that to happen. Now, now what's happening here is, is in the church, uh, or in Christians are coming into those communities, and most of them are poor, most of them are oppressed, and so Christianity is offering the gospel of good news, and there's hope. Well, all men are equal before God. All men, all women are equal before God. God cares for us. He's going to prepare a place for us in his kingdom and all that kind of stuff. So that news is spreading. Many people are coming to faith. So the way it worked, if you lived in Ephesus is when you went into the city market, which was controlled by the temple of the goddess there, Dionysus, you would have to go, and you would have to place an offering to go buy or sell anything. So the way the system, there was a temple tax, and the temple tax went to the politicians. And a third of it went as a sacrifice, and then the priest got the other third. So there was kind of like it really united the community. So if I'm going to go buy anything today, if I'm going to go to Walmart, I've got to carry an offering to the God. I don't know how we would do that in America. You know, maybe in, in Asheville it would be the God of tourism. Maybe in Dallas it would be the God of business. You know, in New York, maybe be the God of cheesecake. I don't know, uh, you know, Memphis barbecue. But, you know, you've got to carry an offering. And so all of a sudden, these people are coming to trust in Jesus and believing that there's a God that created all the universe and not all these local deities. And so they're not paying the tithe. They're not paying the politicians anymore. and They're not paying the religious leaders of the day. And so what happens is the politicians, the religious leaders get together and they say, you know what, we're, we're, we're in trouble here. These people, there's so many people coming to faith in Jesus like these people. And they don't see a need any longer to participate by paying the taxes to the temple or by making an offering to these gods. And they weren't protesting. They weren't morally outraged. The Christians were just trying to live their lives, but they weren't going to pay, you know, a temple tax to a God that they didn't worship and they didn't believe in. And so, what they would do is the politicians, the religious leaders would stir the people up and they'd say, This was their argument. You can find it in Roman documentations. Number one is these people dishonor our grandparents. Don't, don't ever stamp on grandmama's grave, right? They don't worship the same gods that we worship. And so they would get the people together and they'd say, these people are dishonoring our community. They're dishonoring our heritage. Because they're bringing in this concept of, you know, the good news of the gospel. And there's a God who reigns all over all. They're despising our local God. And the people would become upset about. And then the second thing they would say is, and they're destroying our economy. At that point, you've got a riot sounds like america we don't care who you vote for as long as our economy as long as you uh, kind of benefit my wallet my pocketbook you got my vote doesn't make any difference same thing things haven't changed and so what would happen is they'd have to leave everything and they'd go and they were poor in this community and they'd be poor in the next community and many people Would come to faith. It was actually a mechanism that God was using to expand the gospel over the Roman Empire because Christians couldn't stay long at any time. So their whole life, their whole life, was under extreme duress. And so this is this is James' answer. So verse five, he says this, or chapter five, verse seven. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. He's talking about a very anti-American philosophy called deferred gratification he's basically saying that God is sovereign and on his throne and he sees all that's going on Chris talked about the oppression of people last week and God's saying he's going to take care of it he's the he's the judge He's not willing that any man be lost. He desires that all people come to repentance. So even sometimes the very people we hate are the very people that God is working to bring them to himself. So we don't have that type of knowledge. We don't have that type of insight. So James is saying, be patient. Now, I love the word patience. It's a good American translation of a better Greek word, which is makrothumia. Makrothumia actually expresses the sentiment... Better than patience. Macro is long and thumia is heat. What James is saying, he, James is not saying what the church says in shallow America. It's going to get better. James is saying it's not. I want you to hear that. James is not saying it's all going to turn out for the good, not on this planet. Now we can look at history and say we know that's true. We can look at the world and say we know it's not true for them, but somehow we just kind of hold up to this illusion that somehow if we just buy the right insurance, life is all going to work out okay. That's the delusion, one of the delusions of America. What James is saying here is, no, look, have this long suffering, be willing to bear up under the heat because of the reality of what's going to happen. What's, what's going to happen is that God one day will bring justice, and justice will reign on planet earth. And all that troubles us, all that befuddles us, and all that besets us will diminish and disappear under his sovereign grace. And then he gives this illustration. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. So in the Middle East, you often got a rain in the spring that got the crops up. And, you, the, the, you know, the gardener or the farmer would work, and then it quit raining. And then there would be another rain at the end of the season that would bring the crops all the way in. But during the, the middle of the time, there was a drought. But the reality is the farmer had no control over the rain. What James is saying is, look, get, get a grip on the reality is that there is much in life that you'll never have control over. Let me, let me give you a little secret. You'll never be content or happy until you relinquish control. And if you don't believe me, one day you will because there's a way that life has of knocking it out of you. If you haven't figured it out, if you're young and strong and you're dependent on your resources and your ability and your self-sufficiency, listen, here's a prophet's word for you. One day you'll get over that. Life will take that away from you. So James is saying, look, be long-suffering. Be patient because the hope is not in Democrats. Can I say that? The hope is not in Republicans. Can I say that? The hope of the believer is in God, the one who is able at men's ineptitude and inabilities. So don't put your confidence in that. Don't spend your life chasing after things that cannot satisfy nor give you fulfillment, nor can they ever deliver you from the dilemmas that you find yourself in. So James says, look, look, take the farmer. The farmer farmer does it. He works. He gets up and he goes to work every morning. But he has no control over the rain. He has no control over the temperatures. And so this this is the illustration, the picture. Listen, I I would encourage you, do not pray. Have you ever heard anybody say this? Pray for me, I need patience. Don't pray for patience. That's not that it works. Patience is not a gift from God. Patience is a fruit. I want you to hear that. Those of you who are believers, patience is not on 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon trying to get from Arden to Weaverville sitting on I-26. That is not a gift that you're going to bow your head and get when you pray. It's not. Now you may stir up some semblance of patience, but most of you are like me. You just mumble and grumble the whole way home. Patience is a fruit. And fruit is very distinct from a gift. The Bible tells us that, uh, you know, Galatians five twenty two and in, in, in that passage where it's talking about the fruits, the things that God gives us or God creates in us, these are things that we have not within ourselves, with any enduring quality, but these are things I know I want my life as I get older, I want my life to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. I mean that's 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 the man my wife needs. That's the man my children need. That's, that's the man my brothers and sisters in Christ. And all of my neighbors, most of them who are not believers, that's the man they need living in their neighborhood. They need to see that in the midst of the valleys, the same valleys that I'm walking through, to some degree at some time, that there is, there is life in the midst of the valley. So, so it's a It's a fruit. And when we go into to the teachings of Jesus in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and the Father is the gardener. And so there's this picture of God you know, walking among the fruit trees, and He's tending them. Uh, when, we, when we moved to North Carolina, we have a friend who have a, has a big farm up in the mountains, and they have a lot of apple trees, and he said, we get a lot lot of late spring fall, fr- frost that kills the apple trees. But there was a tree developed up in Madison County 100 years ago that doesn't succumb. It sets its fruit late. And so they kind of gave us one of these apple trees off their farm at our house. That apple tree is a big, beautiful, gorgeous apple tree. And we've had it now for 21 years, and it never bears fruit. But if you go up to his house... Uh, He has the same trees that are 100 years old. But they're they're stubby and nubby. And the limbs go up and they turn at awkward angles. And if you see the fruit trees that bear a copious amount of apples, they really look deformed, as compared to mine, which looks beautiful, but no fruit. And so one time I asked him, I said, you know, why are we not having any fruit? And he said, it's because you don't prune your trees. You see, see it's in the adversity of the gardener working on the tree where he, he prunes and he wounds that tree in order that that tree might bear fruit. And what Jesus said is, look, it's impossible for you to bear fruit apart from me. So the invitation is, Jesus says, give it up, invite me in, and let me live through you. Let me give to you what you are incapable of producing for yourself. So this is the picture of James, is that we as followers of Christ, those who are following Christ, we do not find ourselves delivered from the dilemmas of the day, but we find ourselves enabled to enjoy the life God has given us because God is in us, working in us to produce fruit. So James says, in light of this, be patient, be, be long-suffering. And then he goes on and he says, But you must also be patient, strengthening your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. In other words, you're looking forward to that time when you see Jesus appear and all this on planet earth becomes rectified because the King is here, or you die and you join him in heaven where there is none of the valleys that we face on the earth. And then all of a sudden in chapter, I mean, verse 9, he takes a screaming left turn. Brothers, do not complain or grumble about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Now, isn't that interesting? He's talking about patience and enduring and how we can have the fruit of the gospel in us, the Christ in us, the hope of glory. And all of a sudden, he says, won't you guys just quit grumbling? Now, you know, in America today, we think it's all right to complain, don't we? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to share my opinion because I'm an American. You know, we just, we just, we just social media. We're just, we're, we're out there. Oh, I will tell you what I think about this situation. I, you know, I, you know, whatever the situation is, doesn't really matter what the situation is. You know, we, we, we all complain. We just complain, complain, and complain, complain. And what happens is, is when a person is under pressure, who you really are comes out. You see, I've learned this is that when I'm laying on the beach in Sanibel watching the sunset with my cappuccino, I'm a pretty easy guy to get along with. But you, when you take away my paycheck in my retirement, I ain't happy. I mean, and you know who, you know who receives my unhappiness is my wife or my family. I mean, we don't, we don't take it out usually on our neighbors, unless we're on Facebook. Then we just take it out on everybody. But we don't take it out on our neighbors. And what James is saying is because there's so much intense pressure on the church, you guys have started complaining and bickering always about one another. And he's just saying, stop it. When I was in third grade, I had a teacher I hated. She had an 18-inch long index finger. And most of the time it was pointed at me. And this is what she'd do. You know, I'd get to talking, and she'd say, we, Dillon, and I'd turn around that finger. And she'd look at me and she'd go. And you know what she was saying, don't you? Zip it and throw it away. What James is saying is, look, folks, we have the hope of the gospel And when you and I within the context of the church, not that we should be doing it out in the world, but when we're constantly complaining and grumbling about one another, about brother or sister or this person and what they said and what they did, then what happens is we neuter the gospel. We make the king of glory powerless in this generation because the world looks at us fighting and bickering amongst ourselves and the world says, what do I need from them? They're just like me. And I'm I'm very concerned about the church in America as I travel about because I see the same grumbling and complaining and people getting mad over this and leaving that church and going to another church and then they leave that church because they get mad over there and they grumble and complain about what was done over there and they go to another church. And what we're doing is we're just nullifying the crucified Christ. If we can't get it together in our house, then we certainly can't get it together on the streets. So James says, "Just chill. just stop talking about other people." and he puts it in a kind of a sobering context. he says by the he says, listen by the measure by which you judge other people, you yourself will be judged. Think about that. by the measure I talk about you behind your back, or by the measure I say evil things, probably not based on." knowledge about you will be the same degree that I'll stand before the judge of the universe and he'll judge me, but for the grace of God. So James just says, stop it, just zip it. Stop grumbling and complaining. And what's good, good for the goose, the church is good for the gander, our communities. Then the third thing that he says is, listen, and I, maybe I could get an amen for this, but he's, he goes on and he says, listen, don't complain to one another. The judge is at the hand in verse 10. He says, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count it as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and you've seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he gives two examples about being patient. It goes back to the patience theme. And essentially what he's saying is we've got to understand as believers is God's timing is not our timing. I want you to hear that. There are many things in my life that I have begged God for. And the the heavens were silent. There there are things that I asked God for and it seemed like immediately he graciously met those needs and answered those prayers. But there there are many things that the word of the Lord that has come to me is my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what God is saying is, you've prayed about this, you've prayed about this, you've agonized about this, and and son, you're going to have to get used to this, and I'm going to go with you through this valley. I'm always with you, but you're not going to get out of this valley on planet Earth. God's timing is not ours. I I don't know about you, I don't like that. I mean, I, I recognize intellectually that he's the king of the universe, that he sees things from an eternal perspective. But when I'm hurting, when I'm suffering, when I'm fearful, I, you know, I, just, I just get to this place where I just want God to intervene. And, and what James is saying, look, look at the prophets who would say to the people of Israel, you can't go on can, and continue to rob and murder and oppress that God won't judge you. Now, we know that the Bible says that God is patient and long-suffering because he wants all men to come to repentance. So, God, God is working in a way the, in the world that we don't see because we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus Himself told us God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But you and I look at the evil, and if we're like King David at all. We, we just say, Enough! Enough! Not one more death. No more suffering. No more children dying because there's not enough food. Enough! And then we see the root of that is the evilness of humanity. And we say, God, strike them down. And God says, I love them more than you do. The very people who oppress you, some of them will be the very ones who turn to me and proclaim my goodness and my glory. Have patience. So the prophets would preach and preach and preach and the people hated them. We're We're so tired of hearing that God will bring judgment against our wickedness. But the prophets were faithful. They continued with the gospel message all the way to the end. And then he uses the story of Job. And we know the story of Job. He was living the American dream. He had everything. He lost everything. And then his wife said, why don't you just curse God? You you had the big house. You had the nice car. You had had the 401k. You had everything. And in in a moment, you lost it. And so his loving, compassionate, sweet wife says, who needs a wife like this? Just curse God. Now, Job, he argued with God, but do you remember his response to his wife? Even if he slays me, I will worship him. And then we know the goodness of God rescued Job. And so this is what he's saying, is is the patience of the prophets who waited on God, the patience of Job who went through a horrible time in his life waiting on God, those those are good examples for us. And then in closing this morning, verse 12, which is a totally different direction. He says, now above all, my brothers, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by, with any other oath. Say yes, your yes must be yes and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. And, and what he's really saying is, as a church, as a Christian, we don't need to be a presumptuous people. We don't need to pretend to know things we really don't know. So I can go on Facebook And I've got friends who are believers and one group of friends is telling me one thing and another group of friends is telling me something totally different. Now, most of them are not experts in the field upon which they're pontificating. Right? They're like me. They're ignorant. They just haven't confessed it yet. And yet, yet, we do that. We, we just make presumptions. And, and what James is saying is that what's important here is that you maintain the witness that you have as Christians so that the people can see your winsomeness of the gospel and how God can give you peace and transform you and give you joy in the midst of all this suffering. But when you fall into the trap of acting like you know things, having some type of intellectual arrogance, when the world knows you know nothing at all, you defame the name of Christ. James says, just keep your opinion to yourself. As a Christian, be clear in your communication. Let it be salt and light. If you have nothing to bring to the situation, light or salt, which is something that preserves, then say, listen, let me give you something. Let me give you a prophetic word. Say nothing at all. Just say nothing at all. Pray, love, be compassionate, be caring, listening to people's anger, listen to people's hurt, listen to people's anxiety. Be a healer. Don't stick your finger in the wound, church, and drive your finger because your opinion takes precedence over the kingdom of God. Some of you are doing that. And I've got friends, I'm not going to challenge them, but I just have to defriend them because it breaks my heart. They're not on a gospel rant telling people about the love and glory of Christ. They're on some other type of rant, left or right, up or down. It really doesn't make any difference. And Let me finish with these four principles that come out of this teaching. Number one is trust God in what you can control and glorify Him or trust God in what you can't control and glorify Him in what you can. You see, the farmer couldn't control the early rains, but he could work, right? There are things that we can do in our lives that we ought to do. And Those things that we control, we ought to objectively and rationally do. Every live my life so that my neighbors and my friends can see the kindness and compassion of Christ in me. That's what I can do. But there's so much in life I have no control over. And James is is saying to these people living under extreme pressure, give to him that which is his. And when you give that control to God, when you give that over to God, God gives you and begins to create in you his fruit, his peace, his love, his joy, his patience. The second thing is, is this life principle is judge yourself and allow God to judge others. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is liberating when you let go the need to criticize someone else. It is liberating. Coming to the startling conclusion that you, after all, you are not God. And allow God to handle those people as God is, or you give over the authority of God to handle you. So choose not to judge. Allow a God to be the judge. The third thing is, trust God in the valley. You know, there are all kinds of valleys in life. There are short valleys. There are long valleys. There are valleys that never end. When I was, we're out of time, but when I was a new Christian on a university campus, I had a date with Heather, and I thought she was, it was my first date, and I, she thought she was the most pretty thing I'd ever seen. And I had an old Volkswagen that was prone not to run. So we had a a time set up to go out. And I went out, my car wouldn't crank. And I knew Heather was sitting there looking at her watch. It's our first date. And I'm thinking as a new Christian, you know, Oh God! Why now? Why me? And I got out on the rear of the car, and I laid hands on it because I didn't know what to do any better. I said, "Oh God, heal my Volkswagen!" I got in the car and it cranked. Please don't, go, don't do that. There's a young lady in our youth group who's a close friend of my wife. Three weeks ago, her and her husband were diagnosed with COVID. She's been on a ventilator for three weeks, up and down, hope and despair. This morning at 3.30, they called the family in and they said, let her go, let her go. So the nurse in her care is a friend of my wife and she sent a midnight text. And she said, today will be the day that Valerie meets Jesus. Valerie's a precious believer. The valley for her family is just beginning. But today, at a certain given time, the valley for Valerie will end. She will close her eyes and she will leave the valley and she will awaken on the mountaintop. She will forever and ever, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, she will live in glory and never again will she feel the wounds and the brokenness and the sickness that we see on planet earth. There are valleys that are short and there are valleys that will last our lifetime. We as the church of Jesus Christ have to learn to trust God in the valley because we are the only hope the world will ever see. And if we have to have our lives totally arranged and everything working out our way and everybody just kind of lining up with our opinion, then the world has no hope. There is no glory of God in his creation. And that is why Jesus died on the cross for Joe Dillon. It is not just to save me, but it's to demonstrate his power and his might and his grace and his mercy to those who know me. And the same is true for you as a believer. Trust God in the valley. And the last thing I want to say about verse 12 is the last principle is trust God, not yourself. You're in America all the time. Just trust your heart. On God's behalf, I plead with you, please don't. Just go, just go with your gut. On God's behalf, I plead with you, don't. I, 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 just, I just trust my instincts. I just, I just, this is the way I think. I, I, I'm pleading you on God's behalf. Don't. Fill your mind with the truth of the Word of God. Feast on His Word. Feast on His presence. Learn what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Abide in Christ and He will abide in you. Because in the end, whatever time we have before our valleys end, are the coming of the King. The hope of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is expressed in you. There is no plan B. It's you, the church, the people of God. And folks, if we fail in our mission, And people will never know there's a God in heaven who cares for the brokenness of humanity. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you sense that you're maybe in that place of despair, God knows. And I'm going to pray and I I invite you to pray with me right where you're at because God knows your heart. But if you find yourself struggling, if you find yourself battling with depression and discouragement, I want you to do what generations and ages of believers have done in the past, and that is to cry out to God who's merciful and kind and can give you that which you do not inherently have in your own makeup. God can do that. And by the way, that's for those of you who may not be believers this morning, that's one of the great benefits of following Christ. All that is in Christ becomes yours when you follow Him. Now, that doesn't mean you appropriate. You can still be a Christian sitting in that jail cell with the door open, and you're free to go. But you still, as a Christian, you choose to sit in that jail cell. That's self-imprisonment. You're not enjoying the fruits of the Spirit. You're not enjoying the presence of God. Joy, you know, joy is not yours. And maybe this morning... You need to say, I need that. I know it's not in me. So by faith, I'm deciding to follow Christ this morning. But maybe you're a Christian. You're sitting in that jail cell, and you know it's true. You're in a valley, and you can't get out. You're in a place of despair, and you just can't move. And the solution is to cry out to him who is able. Will he deliver you? I don't know, but he'll be with you. I invite you to pray. Just whatever your need is, I'm gonna lift my hands. I'm gonna cry out to God. Dear God, I am an impatient and sinful man. And I grow so weary with my doubts and my fumblings and my struggles. Lord, you're kind. You're kind to remind me that there's a refuge. There's a place of peace. A place where things are resolved by the King of glory, by the one who litigates and cares for my soul. And how often, Lord, I try to navigate through this life with my own strength and my own self will. And I confess it, I confess it, I confess it before you and these my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am so, I am so unable. But I've tasted your presence. I've enjoyed your strength. I know what it means to be occupied in the midst of a storm with your peace. And so, Father, I cry out. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Occupy all of my heart. Occupy my mind. Father, come, come into this world where there's evil and suffering. Oh, God, how desperately. We long for things that cannot solve our problems, but you alone can. And you would, oh, God, help us to turn our hearts because will the world get their direction if not in the church? Let us be a people of joy, a people of peace, a people of compassion, a people of mercy, a people of grace. And oh Lord, how far that is from who we are as a people. But Lord, you are able. You are able. That's our confidence. Just just as you have promised to get our sister in Christ, Valerie, home probably today. Father, you have promised to get every one of us home. Let us rest. Let us rest. Let us dance. Let us rejoice. Let us sing in that confidence, oh God, for your glory. That the world might know. That the world might know that there's a God who cares. There's a God who's coming. And there's a God that even now is. And He rescues the souls of men. Let us live for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.